Hi, this is Zoe, and this is the podcast where we talk about all things people stuff in leadership, and there's never been a more important time to do so. We're facing a global crisis in the health department all around the world. Some of the most vulnerable organizations are not-for-profits. They're at the frontline services of dealing with the most vulnerable people, and this crisis can hit them hard. I've got a lot of leaders who are in not-for-profits who are struggling with what to do, how to confront the crisis, what's this going to mean to their business. Today's guest, Tony Pergolan, is going to help. She has been through a massive turnaround from financial crisis in her own organization, turned it around. It's called Bancroft, and it is the largest human services providers in New Jersey. And she takes a lot of wonderful lessons from that experience and applies them to today's crisis. And she's going to share a lot of her insights through that. Tony herself, she is the author of the most recent book, Too Important to Fail, Leadership Lessons for Nonprofits. She's a highly regarded strategic leader with a wonderful financial acumen who has done a lot for the business of Bancroft and has a lot to offer in the world of nonprofits. So if you're a leader in non-for-profit, this is definitely a must-listen for you. If you're a leader facing the coronavirus crisis, which is pretty much all of us, then you must listen in as well. There's some important lessons here. So let's get into it. Tony, this is so exciting. This is extremely timely uh, in terms of catching up with you and mining your experience for how you do a turnaround with a not-for-profit in difficult times. Uh, you faced it before, and a lot of my clients are facing this right now with the coronavirus challenge. So I'm extremely excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. And I feel like we're sisters because my sister lives in New Jersey, and there you are. I was excited to find out about Bancroft being in New Jersey. Uh, so welcome from the other side of the planet <laughs> to this conversation as well. First of all, New Jersey, what's happening there? So we're, as we're recording this, we in Australia, we are just starting to ramp up the experience of the coronavirus. We are at, as of today, 350 cases, and it's rapidly escalating. And the state is ahead of us, and I know there's lockdowns everywhere. What's happening on the ground for you in New Jersey? So in New Jersey, uh, we are, for the most part, um, on lockdown, uh, unless you're in essential services. So all the restaurants and all the bars and um, all the entertainment, the malls, all of that is closed. Um, essential services, which Bancroft is one of, uh, as I'm sure many nonprofits are. We're a 24-7 operation. We operate group homes. We have about 200 of them where individuals live with us. So we are managing uh, really two issues, in my opinion. We're, we're doing everything we can to keep our staff and our individuals safe and, and you know, focus on their well-being. So we take temperatures of the people we serve twice a day, and we have protocols if us if uh, the staff presents, you know, and we've got strict visitation, so families can't visit. And I mean, it's, it's difficult and, and they're tough decisions, but I do believe they're the right ones for the situation that we have now. At the same time, and we'll get into this as we talk about the book, I'm really focused on keeping the company moving forward because you can't stop generating revenue and collecting cash and all those things when you're in a crisis. You have to focus on both on on the you know the issue at hand, which is keeping everybody safe and well, and at the same time running your company. I know, and I think that's the one of the big challenges for a lot of not for profits. So, so a CEO I was speaking with yesterday who is facing that exact challenge that. 
they provide childcare services. It's their main source of income. It's going to be shut down in a week or two, I'm guessing. And then they will have no source of revenue. So a lot of organizations are facing that. What do you think about what CEOs should do in that context? Well, you know, I just want, I want to comment a little bit on that, on the childcare um, issue, because we're already here facing that in New Jersey as well. In addition to childcare, all of our schools are closed for an indefinite amount of time. And what that does to an organization like, like Bancroft, and I'm sure many other nonprofits, is it's a challenge for our staff to come to work because their, their kids are home from school. So it's this balance of, you know, how we get staff into work uh, so that they can, you know, take care of the individuals we serve. So yes, there, um, I think that there are a lot of companies, I mean, we've, we've been asked by our state to shut down some of our programs as well. Our schools are shut down, our day programs are shut down. And we're really, we're, we're going through the analysis now, right? I'm not waiting until, you know, it's, it's over to see what the impact is. I am figuring out today what the projected impact is in our revenue so that we can begin to hold back expenses where, where we can as well. I mean, ultimately, we have to make payroll every other Friday, right, whether we're ready or not. So we've really got to, you know, we're calling all our funders to make sure they're going to continue to be able to pay. We're just really making sure that cash flow is there and that we're planning ahead for what possibly could happen in our revenue streams which I think is an important part is to look ahead. So I think that's really smart and makes a lot of sense. It's sort of like, let's look at what's on the table and part of our known quantifiables. Is this the time where you're doing innovation thinking? Like you're thinking about how do we pivot? How do we create new income streams? Or is it more of a case of uh, just shoring up what you know is already there? You know, it, that, that's a great question. And I have to say, um, we're, we're doing a little bit of both. So for instance, a lot of our work is around, you know, getting physicians, psychiatrists, those types of things, uh, you know, um, care for the individuals we serve. And in this confinement, what we're trying to do is telemedicine. So, you know, how do we get people to, you know, see our, our individuals through the telemedicine so we don't have to take them out? And at the same time, we have a lot of clinicians that perhaps we can help other members in the community that we can provide the telehealth and get funding for it. So I'm seeing a little bit of, um, you know, kind of fast paced innovation. These are things we've always been thinking about. And all of a sudden, we're trying to hurry up and get them, get them up and running because we can both bring in revenue and continue to provide, you know, our valuable service. Yeah, that's great. I love how it's like, oh, context has changed, better adapt. And I think that's sort of one of the core lessons I read in your book. Let's let's turn to that right now. So and because Bancroft is a fantastic turnaround story, and that's initially why it was published. And I think there's so many lessons that you can take from that and apply to the current context right now with this crisis that we're all facing. So when you took over or came into Bancroft, it was not so good. And you had a long period of time where you were looking at some really difficult financial situations there. What was the first thing that you did? So when I arrived, you know, before I came, I had seen the financials. So I knew that there was some, you know, they were having some challenges, but you really never know how challenged they are until you sit in that seat, right? And so the first things I did was really try to assess some of the key areas that I knew how to be, you know, prioritized, like cash. 
So I was very focused on how cash came into the organization, how frequently it came, what were the funding mechanisms. And at the same time, I was also focused on accounts payable, on how cash left the organization. So those two were my absolute first priorities because I knew I was in a conserving cash mode. And so knowing when it comes in, how it comes in, and the pace it comes in, I had to fully understand, and I almost had to stop, if you will, the outflow of cash until I could get myself in the seat to really prioritize what we had to pay and what really could wait a little bit. I've worked in not-for-profits for 30 years, and what I found was whenever we tried to start looking at the business as a business, there was a lot of pushback from staff who who came to the organization because they were purpose-driven and the talk of treating it like a business, they found confronting and almost like a betrayal of values. Did you have that experience too or not? I did. I did. I mean, people literally would pull me aside and say, you know, we're a nonprofit. I don't think we're allowed to make a profit, which alarmed me quite honestly, because, you know, without making a margin, you have no mission. So no margin, no mission was my mantra for a while. And, and it took a while, but I really educated people about the importance of running it like a business because that's how we were going to be able to increase their wages and to invest in technology and to really make our programs better quality for the people we serve. So if you can take the time and, and I did a lot of it by, you know, bringing it back to their own kind of personal financial, you know, situation, like you can't just keep spending money without checking your balance every once in a while, or you're going to find yourself in trouble. And quite honestly, that's what had happened at Bancroft. So because we had, you know, kind of the burning platform, people were able and willing to learn that pretty quickly and, and then actually get involved in the turnaround. I think it's one thing also to convince the staff, and I think you're right. If you have a burning platform, it's like, we need to do this or no one has a job and we, we won't have services to run. It's kind of like, hmm, okay, maybe we do have to pay attention to this. And there's an education piece that comes along with that. The other part I think is challenging is actually in the broader social context. And this is one of the things I've observed recently through the bushfire crisis. We're going from crisis to crisis so far in 2020 here in Australia. There was a huge amount of public donations to the Red Cross uh, for bushfire relief. There's some $50 million or so. And there was a huge amount of criticism in the public space against the Red Cross, which is a charity, for not distributing the money fast enough, for using some of the money donated for administration, and for taking their time to set up processes to administrate it. And... I was really disappointed in that because I think it's really naive of the public. And I'm wondering what your experience of this too, is that the staff didn't like to think about their business as a business and neither does the public. The public perceive charities as, uh, I don't know, philanthropic benefactors. And yet the reality is, is that every not-for-profit exists in a corporate space and needs to operate as a business. And I think it's um, really challenging for them to live up to the reality of working as a business when people think, no, if I give money to a charity, it should go, all go to the end recipients. And there's this disdain and uh, criticism of organizations for actually having admin that they need to pay. So what's your experience with that? Like, do you get some pushback from that in the United States? 
You know, for sure we do. And, um, you, you know, and, and of course I agree with you. I mean, you know, it's not like you can just hand out $50 million fairly and disciplinedly without some type of structure and thoughtful way of how it will be used. And, you know, of course, if they didn't do that, the public would see that was wrong too, right? But, you know, when I see those types of things, I mean, you know, we're often criticized for, you know, having high salaries at the top of the organization. And, you know, you have to have top talent if you want your organization to thrive. You read the book, but I just felt so personally responsible to ensure this organization is here for as long as people need it, right? We're 137 years old. We need to be around for another 100 years. You need top talent to keep companies running like that. You need them at the helm. You need them in your finance so that they know how to go and get $75 million worth of financing so they can build new buildings. They need them to go in technology so we know how to be much more productive and automated, right? You need top talent and it's okay to pay competitively so you get top talent. Nonprofits are incredibly important to our community. I feel strongly about this and I feel that People think that they're lemonade stands, like, oh, you know, it, you don't even have to make money. And the reality is, is it's even harder for us because we have really tight funding streams that we have very little control over. Yeah, it is. It's a really frustrating paradigm that that not-for-profits exist in. You know, everybody wants them to provide the services, but there's some sort of ceiling which people think is acceptable to pay not-for-profit staff. And if you go over that, you're seen as unethical. Like that is the association you get. It's like, you know, you're not really doing it for the purpose. You're only doing it for the money. And, you know, if we paid you less, there'd be more for the services. And um, this is the biggest challenge. I've, one of the biggest challenges that not-for-profits face is that pushback from how they perceive people at the coal face. And it comes from within as well. Like when I worked at Outward Bound, which is a not-for-profit, uh, which has schools around the world and we didn't get paid that much and honestly like it was a fun job and as a staff member we were like we're not doing this for the money <laughs> it's fun and then you know what people left because they didn't make enough money <laughs> so it's um if we made more money probably have a greater longevity in the field for people in the outdoor industry and there would be less struggle in that regard so i think there's this whole ethos is that you need to do it for the mission not the money and it's rubbish. It's not either or, it's both. And I think when the sooner we get in the broader context to getting society on board with the fact that charities are actually businesses and the people that work there are actually professionals and need to be paid accordingly so that the health and well-being of their clients as well as their staff, as well as the business itself thrives is a core essential one. So there's a whole values change that needs to happen in the broader community. So that's that's me on my soapbox. <laughs> and I'm right there with you. I, I, I'm passionate about nonprofits. They, they provide such an essential service and that people, you know, don't understand that if they all went away, it, it would be a huge impact on the, or on the community. And so, you know, they do need run by, by top talented people. Yeah, that's important. So you faced your first big turnaround uh, through this organization. What was the hardest part about navigating that unknown or uncharted uh, uncertainty part of it where you didn't know if the business was going to survive what was the hardest part for you you know the hardest part was <clears throat> i had an incredibly sense of responsibility 
uh, on my shoulders at all times um, when I went through it, because there were many times that I truly felt we would not make it. You know, we were, you know, at the point of almost issuing war notices to our staff to say we're not going to make payroll. And we were, you know, talking to bankruptcy lawyers and we were talking to mergers. Like, and, and I felt through all of that, that where would these people go if we ended up closing? I mean, we had, you know, 500 people who lived with us at that time. Many of their parents had long passed away. They did not have places to go. And so it was doing this work and making hard decisions and changing the decisions and trying this and trying that all with this weight of where will these people go and how these staff will uh, will lose their jobs. And, you know, so I have to say as much as, as stressful as it was, it was also, I think, my inspiration to keep going and keep trying. And that's that was really, you know, how we got through it. Wow. So your stress was your inspiration because <laughs> I was about to say, how do you actually cope with that? Because that's an enormous amount of pressure to carry on one's shoulders uh, is to know that if it doesn't work, these people are going to be really up the creek metaphorically. So to use it as inspiration as I cannot quit because there is no other option. Was there anything else that you did to help you through that sense of crushing responsibility? Uh, well, you know, for sure, I had um, some key people around me that were, you know, lifelines to me. You know, I had the chairman of my board, the chairman of my finance committee, both two of which were also family members. So in retrospect, you know, um, they would check with me every day, making sure I was doing okay. At the same time, they were nervous that if we closed, what were they going to do with their child? So, so I, you know, I, I credit them as well. So I have to say I had a, a, a really good support group around me. I mean, also, um, and you know, this is kind of funny because, you know, while I was dealing with all this, I, I had two, you know, young boys at home and I would, you know, run home, you know, through the midst of these and, you know, make dinner and take them to their baseball game and what work the concession stand, like every other mom does. And, you know, some people say to me, like, how did you manage that? And, you know, I tell them that in a way I was glad to have a diversion because you can really get sucked into the stress of these really critical crises that you go through in your professional life and you got to take a break from them. And so it was actually a welcomed, you know, change to go home and deal with homework and deal with baths and deal with all those things so that I could really just give my mind a break from it. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, you know, you, you say that, I mean, some of my stress parts of my life were, all, were also, you know, my, my stress relief. Yeah, that's great. I think the key takeaway there is yeah to have a, other people who are in it with you. So you don't feel so alone through that. And as CEO, like you're often on the pointy end. And if you don't have a supportive board, that's even worse. Uh, so you need to find support elsewhere. I like the diversion through your home life is an important one. So this is this your story of turning Bancroft around is a, is a feel good, positive end result. Have you seen other organizations not make it? And what have you observed in what they did or what they faced that we can learn from? Yeah, for sure. You know, I have to say, um, um, you can see that um, not everybody makes it. And and some of the things that I think that um, were the reasons is they didn't act quick enough. 
So, you know, it's almost like you see these trends of declining revenue and you keep thinking like, okay, you know, I would just keep doing the same thing and, you know, miraculously it'll, it'll change. And so, and, you know, we see this, I think, in, in, in a lot of different, you know, in a lot of different businesses is the market changes, the needs change, but if you don't react quickly, you're going to miss it. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, um, that I come out of this with is always be looking ahead. You know, I spoke at the beginning here about this, the impact of the coronavirus. So I'm already doing projections to say, if this lasts two weeks, if this lasts a month, if this lasts three months, what is the impact of the organization on the organ, you know, going to be so we can react. So I just think one of the key lessons is, is always staying ahead of what's happening today and and understanding what the impact of anything going on around you can impact the organization um, moving forward. Yeah, being proactive. So I think um, what you've described is an important tension that leaders need to navigate always, not just in a crisis. It's how do you deal with now and how do you deal with next? You kind of need to do both at the same time. And and doing the projections piece is looking at what's next. That informs what we do now. And I think that's a wonderful uh, insight to share, particularly essential right now. One of the things you talked about in the book is that your, your philosophy and leadership, and you, you turned to learning about leadership through this turnaround process, you came to understand that leadership was, for you, was about servant leadership. I'm wondering, has that changed or how has it evolved for you since you first took over Bancroft? So I have to say that it is still my, um, you know, my uh, true north as a leader. And, And servant leadership to me is really focused on making the decision that's right for the organization rather than a personal reason. Right. And, and I think the, um, you know, the most basic example is, you know, it's really difficult when you need to close a program or when you need to let somebody go or when you need to, you know, make decisions that aren't popular. Every single time I get to those critical decisions, I think about what's best for the organization And even if it's hard for me personally, and it's hard for the person hearing it personally, if I can bring it back to the betterment of the organization every time, I know it's the right thing to do. The other thing I would say is I'm a believer in making decisions. And so I would much rather make a decision today that I change tomorrow than not making any decision at all. And I think that part of that leadership style is, is, is in that as well. Like you've got to keep moving forward. You can't keep analyzing and analyzing and analyzing. You got to go forward. And then if you change it, that's okay. That's okay. But you, you know, you learn from those. Why do you think, like, um, I know a number of, of CEOs who hesitate, hesitate, because they're, they're trying to gather more information before they make make an assessment. And that's part of their behavior preferences and is part of their relationship to risk. How have you developed the capacity to make decisions and make them quickly? Is it something that you've always had or did you have to work at that? So it's, it's something I've always had. And, and I know that because I remember, you know, working for people and I'd be frustrated that, you know, they would be looking for more information and more information. I'd be like, let's just make it. And so my style is I build the team around me. Uh, you know, we always say this, right? You need to build a strong team around you. 
um, with you know, uh, experiences and uh, expertise that I, are not my strengths. I build them around me and then I listen to them. So I really need a team of people who are solution driven, give ideas, want to speak up because that's how I get to my decision is I take all of this in and, you know, I kind of stir it up in there and I get to my decision. And the reason I believe I can make quick decisions is that I am okay with saying it was the wrong decision and changing it. So if you're afraid to say I made a bad decision, I think those are the people that need more and more and more information. I'm fine with that. I'd rather make a decision and really watch it and say, you know what? It was the wrong decision. Let's change it. So you got to allow yourself the ability to say, I made the wrong decision and now I'm going to put the, the right one in place. That takes a lot of humility and uh, emotional fortitude. I was meeting with a group of leaders yesterday and we were talking about ego development, small e ego, and how as we mature as leaders, the ego actually, if we're maturing effectively, dials down so that we can show up with humility and curiosity and care. It's something that needs to be practiced and cultivated, though, because it, it's not a personality thing. I think it's an experience and self-awareness piece. How did you develop the capacity to be okay with mistakes? Um, let's see. That's a good question. I think that, um, I mean, the, the ego piece for sure, you know, is a part of that. Um, never been a big part of me. And I think that goes back to the servant leadership piece. I'm making the decision for the organization. You know, how I look during the decision is not an issue to me. It's how effective was it for the organization? And if it's not effective, then I'm going to change it because I want to make sure that it's right for the organization. So you're right. There's a maturity in there. There's an experience level in there at the CEO level. You know, you're allowed to do it because <laughs> you're the boss, but I really cultivate it. I, I want my, my leaders to feel free about making a decision and changing it later. I mean, that's part of the culture because that's how you move an organization forward. In my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to give them permission to make a decision and change it later. And you're right, it is an important cultural norm to establish as a leader. I think the distinction that you've, as you're talking about it, rises for me around this. And it's the way that you've described it is being a servant leader and what's best for the organization. A mentor of mine, Matt Church, would say that's attention out instead of attention in. And those that are attention in are afraid, like, how is this going to affect me? Those who are attention out are, how is this going to affect everyone else? the organization, the people that we serve. And it actually makes it a lot easier to make decisions when you are attention out because it kind of crystallizes and makes it obvious <laughs> a little bit. It's like we need to take action for everyone else. Um, I never heard that term, but I like it. Yeah, it's a nice distinction and it's a nice clarifying tool. You know, are we being attention in or attention out about that? And I think about this too in the immediate coronavirus challenge. What are the decisions that we need to make in our world right now? Are they attention in or are they attention out? So, for example, um, here's a personal one. You know, it's like, oh, I really want to go to the gym because it's my stress relief. It's a little bit of social contact and it's enjoyable. Then I thought that's really attention in. Like That's a selfish reason to go. And the reality is I came back from Bali last week. It's I'm a potential infection risk for others because I'm not through the 14 day safe zone yet, even though I've got zero symptoms I made the decision not to go to the gym anymore because for an attention out reasons, uh, it's like, oh, this is not about me getting infected. This is about me infecting others. And that's it. You know, I will find alternatives to going to the gym and I will adopt my lifestyle. And that's the best thing to do for everyone else. Um, 
and my personal needs get dialed down completely around that. And I think if we start thinking about decisions we need to make as leaders from that context, whether you use the servant leadership frame or attention in or attention out, which is the same thing anyway, that will help us make better decisions. So that instead of like, should we put on the sports? We're still in, we haven't shut down sports events yet. That's still happening here. We have restaurants and movie theaters still open. And we're doing that because you're like, what does that mean for the survival of the businesses? Yeah. And what does it mean for the survival of the people who get coronavirus, who have serious health repercussions? So we need to be doing a lot more attention out thinking and decision making right now as leaders if we're going to survive as a community and minimize the risks. Um, okay, that was a little bit soapboxy as well. I must be fired up today. <laughs> It's a great point, though. It's a very great point. And, you know, it's it's very in tune with what's happening today. So I'm curious. Um, also, we talked about a couple of leadership lessons you had. One was about being a servant leader. One was about being forward thinking and always moving forward. Is there another key leadership insight you had through the turnaround process that you continue to apply to your work today at um, Bancroft? Yeah, so I would say um, probably just as important that those two are being a very good communicator. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I arrived at Bancroft and I, you know, assessed and pretty quickly what the situation is, I was really surprised to learn that for the most part, the people in the programs, the leaders, they had no idea that it was as bad as it was. I mean, they, they knew it was there were issues, but you know, to them, it was the same issues as always. And in their mind, they thought, well, the finance department will fix that. And what I did pretty quickly was educate them and communicate that. So no turnarounds don't happen in a finance department. And in fact, they happen out in operations because all the people in the operations are the ones making the decisions that directly impact the financial statement, right? So they decide working overtime, they decide you know, what supplies to buy, they decide what food to buy, and all those decisions is what impacts the financial statement, not what the finance department is actually doing. They're keeping score of the decisions, I used to say. And so over the years, I've really learned that you have to have people, you have to communicate. And it's a little risky because some people are scared to see what the financials are, but you can't change behavior if you never communicate to them. And as I've grown over the years, I've really learned that communication in all around is probably, you know, one of the challenges you'll never solve perfectly because it's really hard to keep communicating, but it's essential. And we're focused now on the why, right? So why are we doing things? You know, why are we letting people work remotely? Why are we not letting other people work remotely? We have an, I mean, we have 3000 employees and you know, what happens at the top level, I mean, is our every day, but when you try to get down to the 3000, the more they understand the why we do things, the more they can be really responsive and um, buy into it. I think that's really, that's really essential. And I'm on the receiving end of, uh, of a supplier uh, organization that I've booked in to do a program with. And of course, I'm like, is it going ahead? What are your alternatives for it? And they have just like the cone of silence. I even sent them email. I'm like, could you just give me these answers? <laughs> or even <laughs> the fact that you're thinking about it? Nothing, no responsiveness. And it's, I don't know what's happening on the end of that. I was like, maybe they want to get it right before they come back to me. I'm like, it's so frustrating. And it's one of the key strategies 
through crisis or in general in leadership anyway, is to keep communicating what you know at the time, even if it's to say, I don't know about that yet. We're looking at it because otherwise people fill the void with all sorts of imaginations. So with 3,000 people, that's, you know, Chinese whispers is an easy thing to happen there. How do you actually get the message out effectively across 3,000 people without it getting twisted? Well, that's, that's the challenge every day. Uh, I mean, we, I have to say we've come a long way. I mean, we have, you know, my direct reports and their direct reports. We have about 70 people that are, um, you know, in the leadership team. I spend face-to-face time with them when we're communicating, especially big initiatives. We do a PowerPoint presentation that we then send to them with key talking points and ask them to give it to their staff and so on and so on. So we try to make it, you know, easy to cascade the messages. And then I would also tell you that I do about two town hall meetings a month so that I'm out in front of employees listening to their questions, right? So we've gone through many iterations of town hall meetings, like we're going to come out and tell you what's important. And we heard, you know what, that was nice to know, but not important to us. We'd rather, you know, much rather ask you our questions. So now we go out and we just answer questions. And more than anything, people just need to be heard. Have you ramped that up in light of recent times or not? Yes. Yes. We're, uh, we have a daily phone call uh, with some key people on it. And, you know, every day out of that call comes a mass community, you know, email um, that goes out to all the employees on, you know, I mean, it's changing and, you know, this is coming to you, as you know, but it literally changes by the hour, you know, what's open, what's closed, what they want. So we're teaching, you know, staff that you've got to really stay on top of these. Our regulators are sending us information. And we've also opened um, uh, a Q&A. So we're getting questions from them on a constant basis. And, you know, you have to man that, you know, somebody on the call said today, we asked for their feedback and now we have to give them answered, right? So you really have to, you have to pay attention to that. Employees need to feel heard, especially in times of crisis. Yeah, that's wonderful. Tony, thank you so much. There's been so much wisdom shared already. How can people find out more about you and the work of Bancroft? Uh, So for sure, you can buy my book, which is called uh, Too Important to Fail, Leadership Lessons for Nonprofits. You can go right to Amazon and uh, type in the title. You can also go to my website, which is tony-pergolan.com. That's T-O-N-I-Pergolan, P-E-R, G-O-L-I-N.com. And you can also look at Bancroft's website to find more about the important work that we do at bancroft.org. Perfect. And we'll have all those links in the show notes for folks as well. Tony, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for taking time out of crisis management to talk with us. I'm sure it's going to be really valuable for everyone listening to the podcast who's behind the crisis here in Australia, but coming up onto it. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Lots of good stuff in that interview today. I must say, I was really fired up talking with Tony. This is such an important topic. How do we keep our essential services, our essential not-for-profits in business? And how do we change social thinking about what it means to run a not-for-profit? Not-for-profits are businesses and they need to survive and thrive in a business environment. So we need to change our attitudes about what it means to reward and remunerate the people who work in not-for-profits so they can deliver even better services so they can innovate to be more creative and dynamic 
and valuable to the clients that they serve, the most vulnerable people generally. So the key takeaways for me are no margin, no mission. And I think this is a really important mantra that will help change the perspective on what it means to run a not-for-profit, to work in a not-for-profit, and to honor a not-for-profit. The next one is to make a decision today and change it later. I think that's a really powerful insight and a useful frame to use as a leader. And I think a lot of leaders want to make the right decision and they're not sure what it is. Making a decision and moving forward brings clarity. So by taking a decision, making a decision, we get information about was it right or was it wrong rather than pontificating about whether it was right or wrong. So make a decision today and change it later. And the third one is for me, attention out makes the decisions simpler. So if you're wondering what to do, ask, is this attention in or attention out? And if it's attention out, then you're on the right track and the benefits will be there for you and others in the long term. Wow, we're in an really interesting times and together we can get through this. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your questions, your insights, your recommendations on the Facebook page. So as more and more of us get stuck, (laughs) relegated to home office work or working from remote places, it's more important than ever to connect. This is your opportunity to do so. I'd love to have a conversation with you via Facebook or reach out to me, zoe at intercompass.com.au. We're going to get through this, guys. We're going to get through it. All right. Live well, lead well.